HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Sally Eckes, a literary agent at the Lisa Eckes Group, who represents culinary, health, wellness, and lifestyle authors, everyone from seasoned pros to first-time cookbook writers to well-established chefs, bloggers, and TV personalities. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Sally about what's hot in the world of cookbooks, how to become a cookbook writer, and our last segment, we'll hear, we'll hear Sally's own Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. It may surprise you to learn that Julia never had an agent. 
While Julia's not here to tell us why, I suspect it's because she came out of nowhere before rocketing to stardom. She wasn't already a journalist or personality, as was often the case. No one had ever heard of her before, and the manuscript she had in hand was developed well outside of the mainstream literary world. What Julia did have was some good connections, which helped land that honking, famous manuscript on the desk of editor Judith Jones at Kanaw. That changed everything, and the outside success of Mastering the Art of French Cooking meant that Julia had a calling card that spoke for itself. She didn't really need an agent to promote her work, especially after she had a hit TV show as well. She did always have a lawyer who negotiated her deals, something that literary agents also do. Now, Julia was not most people, and after toiling along for quite some time, she hit her stride really quickly. Most people's first cookbook is not a sensation, even if it sells pretty well. So most writers, who aren't Julia, usually have an agent. And that agent's job is twofold, part sales and marketing, They know the marketplace and help authors assess which ideas are likely to find a publisher, and thus an audience. And second, they help the authors refine their ideas, and generally are the first pair of eyes to critique a newly finished manuscript. Sally Eckes is just such a person, having grown up at the knee of her mother, Lisa Eckes, veteran literary agent, former publicist, and founder of the Lisa Eckes Group. If you want to talk cookbooks and know who's buying what, whether publisher or consumer, Sally is your woman. We've been lucky enough to lure Sally's expertise to the foundation, recently welcoming her as a new member of the advisory council for the foundation. And being strongly connected to the world of food writing is something we at the foundation very much value, just as Julia did. So, as is the purpose of this podcast, we're hoping to share Sally's insights with you today. Welcome to the podcast, Sally. Hi, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. That was an epic intro. I'm honored to be here. (laughs) Well, we're glad you could be here. So if, if you're someone who loves hearing about food, I'm assuming you're someone who loves cookbooks, just like I do, or at least hearing about cookbooks, as the two interests generally go hand in hand. And the other thing about cookbooks is they tell us a lot about what people are thinking and feeling in society as a whole. So they truly represent the times. So I'm excited to get into this with Sally about where we are with cookbooks this year. So what do you think are the, the kind of big trends for 2018 in cookbooks, or what are you seeing? Yeah, I think we're at a really exciting time in publishing and in cookbooks in general because, like you said, I grew up in the industry and around it, having never intended to really work with Lisa at the agency. And when I joined, we saw this big um, shift from classic big cookbooks to this swell of digital influence. And so over the past nine years working here, I've seen all sorts of trends come and go. And I think we're we're moving towards a really exciting time because the interest in food from a consumer standpoint is just absolutely exploding. And of course, social media is playing a part of that. Um, we're seeing tons of cookbooks that uh, are tied to different brands and appliances. I'm sure there are many listeners who have purchased some sort of air fryer cookbook or Instapot cookbook. Um, but on the other end of the scale, I think we're also seeing this this swell in community-based cooking and gathering. And that's really what is so personally and professionally interesting to me because getting together around food as the common denominator is such a great starting point for conversations. And I'm seeing books pop up in this space. A great example is the um, 
the Feed Your People book that Leslie Jonas and 18 Reasons put together through a Kickstarter and other community-based books. And so the, the concept and notion and thrill, whether it's through social media and sharing food um, through a digital screen or through books, is something that I'm, I'm so excited to see. And, and we're seeing a lot of that, that crop up. I think that's really interesting to hear your excitement over the digital influence because I think a lot of, for a lot of traditionalists, particularly book people, the digital influence, that phrase is terrifying. So could we dive into why that's exciting to you and you, you don't see it as a threat? Well, certainly when I joined the agency, the, the conversation around threat was was strong. There was a huge pendulum swing back to, um, or, or starting with the blog to book sort of craze. And I think there were a lot of cookbook authors and really talented food writers who felt threatened or maybe still do feel threatened. Um, but I'm starting to see this, this swing towards the direction of back towards the table, back to the kitchen. And so the digital screen and like, and social media and the digital interest in food and culinary is connecting people, but it's connecting people in a way that they have access, either sort of perceived or or real access to culinary influencers that they're following or that they love or they're fans of. And so it's getting people excited about cooking again. And so then when they're excited about something they see maybe on Instagram or on Pinterest or even on a blog, um, although I think blogs are sort of starting to to fade into the into the background finally. Um, it's getting people back into their kitchen, and so they're sharing recipes with their friends and family or even just with themselves and, and cooking and, and honing some of their skills. And I think the, the peak of digital craze has helped get people back into the kitchen. Well, that, that's a great outcome. I, I'm fascinated that you you that by and I, I now that you say it, I can see it a bit. But the blogs are fading. Are blogs fading and being replaced? How if you don't have a blog, that used to be the way you became, particularly if you were coming out of nowhere, a digital influencer. Are Instagram feeds and YouTube feeds kind of replacing what blog blogs used to do? Yes. So I, I don't know if I coined this, but I used to call it getting blogged down because everyone would start their pitch to me with like, here's my blog and here's my readership. And the dreaded sort of platform question that comes up in proposals was so pervasive in the rejections that we would get from publishers. And I think blogs are a nice complement to have online and host your recipes and be your digital archive. But by no means am I looking for or is the driving number one factor of who who's creating their platform and what a book deal, sort of the success of a book deal um, and proposal looks like is based on the blog anymore. So I think blogs are fine, are obviously great to have established, but if you're thinking about getting into publishing, um, I'm not as interested as I was five, six, seven years ago in what the blog looks like. And frankly, I don't think everyone needs to have a blog. I think um, starting a blog now is sort of just like breathing into the air that everyone breathes into. I mean, it's it's totally saturated, and we don't need more blogs. Uh, Instagram is huge, as is YouTube and other video and um yeah, like storytelling sites. And I think blogs used to be the medium in which a lot of culinary writers, authors, and influencers would share their stories. And now so much of it is digital video. And that's a big part of where we're seeing this, this next wave, this next wave go into. 
Great. Well, I want to pick up on that, but let's do that in the second half because I want to stick with, because I think it's really helpful for people, particularly to understand the marketplace and where it's at in a global way, not necessarily globally, but globally, small g, big picture. Because I also think people have a tendency to look for the books that are already kind of what interests them or what they're used to. And um, rather than kind of what's the latest and greatest. So one thing I really want to talk to you about, and you know, it, I think it's helpful if you're both general and specific, and specific in terms of title, general in terms of categories. So what are the cookbooks that you see that have really been selling well this year or ones that came out at the end of last year that have continued to, to rocket? Um, can you give us some sort of like what are the big categories and that are growing and what are some of the titles that you've really been amazed to see um, maybe overperform? Sure. So categorically, I'm seeing a huge, and this is well beyond a trend, I think this is, this is here to stay um, in terms of a movement, a tremendous interest in vegetable and plant-based cooking. And so even on our list at the agency, we had three really breakout plant-based books um, this spring, which also followed in sales numbers. So both in terms of the, the marketplace interest and press coverage, and then also the sales that followed. So Hot for Food, which is a vegan comfort food book from Lauren Toyota and 10 Speed Press, that was a book um, that came out of a very successful YouTube channel. And so that was a really good example of both a topic that was uh, in the marketplace really popular, which is comfort food and vegan food, and a person, entity, and uh, digital platform to back that, back that up and promote the book. Um, and then additionally, we had the uh, Wicked Healthy Cookbook from Chad and Derek Sarno, and Dave Joachim was the writer on that um, from Grand Central, and that was that's that's sort of what I've been calling plant-based and vegan 2.0. Um, so these guys are plant pushers, not meat shamers, and they're bringing chefs' uh, skill and and training to the plant-based market. And so it's really for people who want to incorporate more vegetables into their repertoire in a really fun and exciting and innovative way. Uh, that book dramatically changed how I cook in my kitchen uh, with some of the techniques that are in that book. Um, and then uh, the third book that was this spring from our agency, and then I'll speak a little bit broader, uh, was Food is the Solution by Matt Prescott. And he's the senior food policy advisor for the Humane Society. So that was equal parts environmental impact of animal uh, of the uh, animal consumption industry with followed up by uh, vegan recipes to replace eggs and milk and dairy in your kitchen. And so we're seeing this big interest culturally and also environmentally in eating more vegetables. And I saw that on our agency list sales-wise and in the marketplace. Um, And then in the marketplace at large, you know, the appliance category is is huge. Um, You know, there's also this big interest in different regions and cuisines. And so I think the Zahav book is a great example, both sales and from uh, a marketing standpoint, it got great press coverage. Of course, Michael Solomonov is um, a super talented chef out of the Philadelphia area and expanding. So that's a that's another book. And um, in, uh, that's from Houghton Mifflin and Andrea Nguyen's books from Ten Speed. Her pho book won the James Beard uh, 2018 
award, and, you know, she's just a super talented author that also continually publishes, like, a strong sense of place and cuisine with a voice, and, you know, people really want to read read those stories, and it's great to see both uh, specific categories like plant-based or appliance alongside deep dives into places like Israel and um, different regions in Africa and Middle East. I mean, we're seeing pockets of cuisines finally start to pop up, and that's been really exciting as well. So from that, my takeaway is that kind of the older generation of general interest or technique books or things like that, other than the techniques that might fit into an appliance category, are are not the kind of current zeitgeist. I would agree, although I think that so much of the millennial cooking that I'm seeing, um, (laughs) and I use that word lightly and seriously because technically I am a millennial, and so I'd like to also work towards a, a more inclusive use of the word since I don't usually hear it in the most positive way, but because so many millennials positive, are going maybe. online for recipes um, and, and sort of like technique and skill-based learning, I, and I may regret saying this on the podcast, but I do think that there's a, a place for a millennial-focused technique-based book um, with some sort of digital component that helps drive people back to the book. But ultimately, so many of my friends and colleagues are are going back to some of the classics, which I also absolutely love. And it would be really interesting to see how a millennial-targeted um, technique and skill-based book would do in the marketplace. Well, you've actually anticipated my next question was, in, in what you were talking about, like definitely a lot of the books you just mentioned sounded slight, you know, relatively young skewing, but the book market as a whole doesn't usually, at least to my knowledge, skew that young. So where is the cookbook market and interest amongst millennials? And I think a lot of people get confused that in a marketing sense, millennials are not as young as a lot of people think. So there's two categories younger than millennials. Right. So are 20 year olds buying cookbooks? What are millennials buying and how from what you've seen or heard? I know it's tough data to get, but is it a big difference or does it seem at least amongst the interested readers to kind of follow the overall trend and pattern or are they driving the overall trend and pattern? So there's a little bit of both. And it is there are certain publishers that are calling market-based research and trends and then publishing very quickly, very specific niche books that fill that marketplace. And so when we're talking about sort of the younger skewing millennials who are purchasing cookbooks, um, I think we're looking at things like the Cato Diet and Paleo and Whole30 and Meal Prep and these kinds of books that fit a very specific lifestyle. And so if you are a millennial who fits that lifestyle, these are the books that are being both marketed algorithm-wise to you via social media and ads, and then also those are the books that people are seeking out. Then that informs, obviously, the wider cookbook marketplace and where publishers are saying, okay, should we be publishing in this category? Um, In preparation for today, I I, I reached to a couple different editors and colleagues that I I really admire, and I was chatting um, with Lorena Jones from 10Speed, and, you know, she was saying that at this point so many, and I would agree with her, almost all of the publishers are publishing really beautiful books, and everyone wants photos and a ton of recipes and a lot of content for a low price point. And it's interesting because, you know, she was saying that 
it's it's creating this demand for for still and again i hope this provides like a hopeful message just a tremendous amount of really original substantive text and so you could line up eight different publishers books on the bookshelf and they all may look and feel very similar you know there's market research that informs what colors are working well on covers and then all of a sudden you see this movement from publishers and the art department saying, hey, we really need more white space or we'd really like something bold and graphic. Um, And you can see that in each sort of season's lineup of books. But ultimately, you you open the book and you want to be brought, just brought in immediately. And that beautiful text is really important and that's where people are going to stand out. And millennials want to read that. And I think everyone, you know, below and above them as well, um, generally speaking, the cookbook buyer category is still that sort of 33 to 55 female skewed sweet spot for from a consumer standpoint. I see. And yeah, for just our listeners don't know, 10, 10 Speed, which was an independent publisher and is now an imprint, is, you know, one of the leaders in the kind of having a, a large library of, of, of um cookbooks and cutting edge cookbooks and it's kind of a big player in the cookbook space even if you might not have noticed that you're reading a 10 speed imprint but i also wanted to ask though that seems a bit having um i know um, sally and i know each other from trying to sell books together that when you are asking for greater content with a lower price point with more beauty which means more design and more photos and more pages that all sounds really expensive so how how are publishers reconciling the greater demand from consumers for quality without the willingness to pay for it it is very expensive <laughs> and you know that responsibility falls to many times the author uh, the publisher you know there's of huge back when the blog to book trend was taking over, you know, a lot of bloggers were also delivering their own photography, and so that was a cost-cutting part of the advance offer from publishers, and that was very attractive. And then, you know, some of those books came out, and we realized some bloggers don't have the same ability to take a beautiful photo for the digital screen in their computer as they do for the printed page and different paper qualities and trim sizes and um, different focal points. And, you know, then we're also talking about bringing in a really talented prop stylist and a food stylist. And, yeah, those those big, beautiful books, which is frankly what most publishers are doing now and have been doing for many years, are very, very expensive. And so that is part of what I, you know, close my door, get out my calculator and crunch numbers on because when I'm negotiating deals, I'm looking at who needs to be paid out at what points of the process to make sure that, you know, what might seem like a really large, attractive advance and overall offer actually breaks down to being um, in a place where authors don't have tremendous out-of-pocket costs because things like paying the photographer or paying the food stylist typically happen early on in a book's production process. And we all know if you're listening and you're a published author that authors aren't paying you your advance in one lump sum the minute you sign the contract, right? They're spreading spreading that shared financial investment and risk over oftentimes a one to two or longer period of time. So those, those are the number crunching uh, <laughs> deals that, that keep me locked in my office until every penny is accounted for appropriately and in the best interest of our authors. 
Well, that's helpful. And I think we're going to come, we're going to pick up on that theme a little bit later, but I'm going to keep it light and breezy on the fun side. So let's talk about the fall, which is usually a big cookbook launch season and kind of both is for the new and then leading up to the holiday season. Do you have some sense of what some of the exciting titles are or what people are kind of buzzing about in anticipation for, for fall and holiday? Yeah, there's some big fall books coming celebrity-wise. The Cravings book is coming, and that's from, um, I think that's from Clarkson Potter. I don't remember off the top of my head. You know, I also want to take the opportunity to plug year-round publishing because while the fall is uh, sort of branded for the holidays and you get these great big celebrity books and a lot of restaurant books comes at, come out. Um, for example, we have a book from Daniel Olivella from um, the Austin area on Catalan food that's coming out from Clarkson Potter. You know, I also think that there's this huge opportunity when everyone's sort of looking towards the fall, the the year-round publishing and, and promotion and opportunity for, for press and for sales, I think has more more legs when you're looking past the fall. So the fall is great for holiday sales because that's what everyone's thinking about. But then as soon as the holidays are over, they're typically and statistically usually see like this big drop in, in your, in your book sales. So when I'm looking at like the royalty statements, I'm always thinking, Oh, you know, what, what books that do we have that are still in production? We don't have a pub season yet. What, what season would they be really good for? Really good for. However, you asked about keeping it light. So I will, I will keep it light. Um, and say that other books coming this fall, uh, we have a really fun book from a blogger, uh, Dan Whalen. His blog is called The Food in My Beard, and he ha- he's a comfort food mashup king and expert. And so he has a book called The Comfort Food Mashup Cookbook coming out in October from Sterling, um, and things like his quesadilla burger or his um, – he had a, a s'mores burger that – created a pretty viral debate around whether or not chocolate marshmallow and burger should go together. Um, so that's something fun that's coming this fall. Well, I think that's ever is something everyone can ponder and debate. I'm trying to wrap my head around that one myself. <laughs> I like both. I've never ever thought of combining them, but um, it was a polarizing com- discussion for sure. <laughs> yes. A good kind of polarizing. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Sally more about actually becoming a cookbook author and all these kind of areas that she started to delve into in terms of guidance. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Nothing says summer like fresh, ripe strawberries. I can never get enough of them. Love them sliced over Greek yogurt. Julia has a wonderful recipe for strawberry tarts in the French Chef cookbook. It's pulled right from episode 83 of the French Chef television series. Julia says it best in the head notes. Fresh strawberry tarts are a feast for the eye as well as the tongue. All you need to have for these glittering eye catchers is pastry dough, fresh strawberries, jelly glaze, and if you wish a filling, French pastry cream. She then provides a straightforward pastry dough recipe ideal for Bob's Red Mill unbleached white all-purpose flour. You can make a fairly low-effort treat if you make the dough ahead, use store-bought jam, and skip the cream, which will let in-season, great-tasting strawberries shine. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings 
on Bob's Red Mill products like their high-quality white, all-purpose flour. Perfect for summer baking. So you're someone who really loves to cook, you love creating recipes, and you, you know, you've been told you're not a half-bad writer. So naturally, you want to write a cookbook. So Sally, we have this person. You started going into it, but what's your general advice about someone wanting to write a cookbook? Because it sounds like now it's definitely not start a blog. No, I would say a blog is fine to have, but definitely not the lead part of the pitch. Um, I think that Evergreen is having a really good idea and a strong POD or point of differentiation. When I'm looking at proposals, the first two places I go are to the overview to see, you know, what is the concept and what's the point of differentiation. And then also, I really want to work with authors who have done their research and understand the marketplace. So I flip to the competition section and I try to see who understands where their book would fit amongst other books in a similar category that have done really well and paved the way for this next new take on XYZ topic. Um, and, and frankly, you know, when we're talking about who should write a cookbook, um, in, in my experience, I hear, a, you know, a lot of people say to me, everyone tells me I should write a book, you know, whether it's their sister or even their blog audience when, when you're, or your newsletter audience or your Instagram audience, just to sort of widen that digital scope. When people come and say, you know, everyone tells me I, I should do a book, unless they're following that up with, and now is the time, I like when people say, you know, but I don't want to, or I'm not ready, because when those people, and if those people decide to write a book, I know they're going into it really understanding the amount of work, time, and effort it's going to take to to put those books together. So a really strong idea and a, and a commitment to understanding the marketplace and where you fit in and to do the hard work it takes to get the book done is sort of the essential starting starting blocks. Yeah, I think that's a great point, which is just because everyone is telling you that you should write a book, that is not the reason. The reason to write a book and do a proposal is because you personally really want to do that. And if that motivation is not there, that it's probably not going to work and it's certainly not going to impress an agent. Yeah, it's just such a long process and it's a pretty intimate one that takes a lot of you know, rejection and celebration and detail-oriented hard work. And so, you know, I like to say that a book is like a big, beautiful business card. It's not a retirement plan, and it, it takes a lot of time and energy and effort to see it into the world and then to support it to succeed really well. So do you think the starting point for writing a book is that proposal, or do you think it goes back to having already figured out how you have a unique voice, that point of differentiation, what you can do and say that almost nobody else can? From a logistical standpoint, the starting point is a proposal, yes. I mean, that's essentially the business marketing document to sell you and your idea. And in the proposal is where you show and explain and illustrate your voice, your unique point of differentiation, and an understanding of the marketplace. But but it sounds like you're also saying where the, the, the sort of narrow voice was coming down is, are you on social media and do you have a following? But I think you're saying that is definitely helpful. But if you are really doing something that you're very passionate about, have a clear vision for, and aren't seeing other people do or cover, 
that is still of interest to both agents and publishers, even if you're not a social media maven? Having access to an audience is very helpful for securing a book deal. What, you know, what that used to mean was, what's your blog numbers and traffic? And then people started asking, okay, what's the unique traffic? And now people are asking, what's the engagement like? And what's the conversation like between, you know, a social media influencer or a food writer and their audience? And sometimes that audience is not online. And I think if you happen to have the outlier scenario where you're doing something really unique and creative, you're filling a need in the marketplace, and you have a unique idea and you don't have a social following, is it harder to secure a book deal? Yes. I'm sure there are plenty of listeners who are going to um, sort of write in and be revved up if I say, you know, oh, yeah, that's really, it's still very easy for those people to get book deals, because the reality is it's not. It's, it's hard when you don't have some sort of social presence. That being said, if you have access to an audience, whether it's selling donuts at a pop-up or it's creating a really unique uh, grain company that happens to break out at a chef's collaborative conference or anything in between, that, and you also can follow that up with a super strong proposal outlining your idea, your credentials, your point of differentiation, and how you're going to be a partner with the publisher to market your book, that's, that's also a sweet spot for publishing. I think that's a really excellent point. And the penny just dropped for me, being someone who sort of straddles the old age and the new age, um, is that that has always been true. And there's this perception that there's somehow a unfairness to just sort of a popularity competition amongst social media and people who are good at it invest in it. But I think it was always true that a huge number of cookbooks, as we just talked about on that opening with Julia, it was about audience access because the majority of people who transitioned from some thing to being a popular cookbook writer started with either being a columnist or a journalist on food or they had a cooking school. And before social media and before you could just do videos on YouTube, that was a means to develop an audience in the old offline world, which actually the, the, the bar to do that is so much higher in the past than it was today where you can do it on YouTube. Absolutely. I mean, in any industry, there is going to be sort of the cool kids and the popularity contest where networking gets you sort of the cred or the end goal of what you want in the industry. That's fine. That's you're going to see that pop up in in fashion and food and tech and whatever industry we're working in. But the real like, but there's still something to be said and a tremendous amount of value for people doing really awesome, interesting, unique work. And that's what gets me super excited. You know, I can. I represent a lot of different types of authors and clients, and I do so with each of them because I wholeheartedly love what they do and how they do what they do. And I work with people who have, quote-unquote, these really massive platforms, and that's great, and I love working with them. And I also work with people who have an uphill battle to sell their proposal, but I, I do sell it and I represent it because when I meet them, I don't e- I may not even know what the idea is immediately, but within, you know, five seconds of meeting someone, I know if I want to work with them and be a part of what they're doing because it is just so unique and so interesting. And the idea, if you're, if you're willing to be patient, will come to the surface. It will happen through brainstorming and working together and passing ideas back and forth and workshopping. Um, but if you're doing something cool and interesting and you have a unique take on our culinary space, I mean, that, that's, 
who wouldn't want to work with that? That's that's the dream. Well, I think that's also you as an agent identifying something in this person that they're a unique voice and personality. And as you say, they have this point of differentiation, whether it's yet codified in a great proposal, that is something that there's an audience for. And ultimately, it's what agents and publishers do is they're not just in the business of saying, no, I don't like that. They, they're they actually more um, egalitarian in the sense that if they think they can sell something to an audience, even if it's not their personal favorite, as long as they can relate to it, they'll probably take it on. And so I was going to ask you to talk more about what you're hearing from publishers about you know, what they want and not just what they want. We talked about the general categories that are doing well, but what they want in terms of of an author and particularly beyond maybe just having a good social media presence? Yes. Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the things I love about what we do is we're not just matching concepts with publishers. We're also like matchmaking and making these connections between different personalities and the publishing process at X Publishing House with this type of author who is incredibly organized or has a sometimes they have a team in place that can help them execute a bigger vision than otherwise would be accomplished on their own and ultimately what makes a really good author is somebody who is really willing to work hard and collaborate and they listen and they are innovative and they recognize that each person throughout the publishing process brings something unique to the table so i as an agent have a have a perspective and a opinion to add to the proposal and the pitch process. The publishers that we're showing it to, even through the rejections, and sometimes especially through the rejections, um, have this expertise that is so informative. And if you are open to the process and to listening and to the, the work, again, it's hard, it's hard work, but you know, that's, that's what we're doing. We're in this for our careers. The people who are willing to work at it and listen to that feedback are the people who ultimately really stand out. Um, I was sharing with somebody the other day when I take on when we sign a new author and we take out their project and they get their first rejection. I always send a congratulations note, and it it says something to the effect of, you know, here's some feedback below. Congratulations, this is your first rejection. You're on your way to being an author. Well, right. It's that first. You know, you that's a great way to look at it, right? The rejection says someone considered your work and said, "Okay, this person is an author. Do I want to publish their work?" No, but that's a level beyond. I'm just thinking about it in my bedroom. Right. Right. Well, I love that. That that. Yes. Yes. After. So, what do what do you send out after twenty rejections? Uh, hopefully, congratulations! I finally found a publisher. <laughs> Um, you know, as Lisa says, and as I was mentored and taught by her and in our agency, all it takes is one yes. No, that's true. And sometimes I think we've experienced this together, too. Sometimes you work on a proposal and you're so sure this is this is the right one. And then you get all those rejections. But what it leads to is you being like, no, that wasn't the right one or that was off brand and we didn't realize it because everyone perceives us or what we're doing in a certain way, but then it guides you toward, oh, duh, I should be doing this. And then actually sometimes it makes it easier to hit a home run the next with the next idea. 
Absolutely. I mean, essentially, pitching a proposal is doing market research and workshopping your your idea, and you want the proposal to be final and perfect and amazing, but if everyone is writing back with very similar feedback, it's telling you it's the answer. You know, it's the feedback and it's the thread and story of, okay, here's how this could shift that's better for the marketplace. The question then is, is that the book the author really wants to write, and is there an iteration that you know, two, three, four years from now when that book is out will still be really relevant in the marketplace as opposed to, um, you know, pivoting based on what six, seven, or ten people said and then really having either the author not be into that idea, which is then really hard to execute on, or having the marketplace change so dramatically. So you want to hear the feedback and utilize and sort of take what's best for the book at large um, and also not compromise or pivot too much based on, you know, what the author really wants to do or what makes sense for the brand at large as well. And sometimes, you know, we don't sell every proposal we take on and take out. And sometimes we'll do a revision and then repitch it, or sometimes we'll retire it and wait till the next book idea really makes sense. And that's, you know, again, why having, if you decide to work with an agent, um, you know, that's part of that relationship and process too. No, and I think you're right. You also have to take proposals out because that gives you, until you do that process, you don't get the feedback of where your idea is aligning or misaligning with the market. And sometimes you realize, like you were saying, it's only slightly misaligned versus it's totally off brand or the market is moved away from what you, your voice or brand represent. But maybe there is a way by thinking differently that you can get back to, to merging the two back up. But it's tricky. Exactly. Right. So given all of that, where do you think the market's going, at least in the short term? Like, I won't make you do 10 years, but like in the next couple of years, do you, it sounded like from what, what you said before, your short, ter- short term thing is around veggies, is that, and vegans? Well, I will, I will also say, you know, one of our really successful books last year was the book Meathead. So that hit the New York Times bestseller list. So when I talk to new clients or I'm sharing sort of the successes of our agency, I, I give equal weight to the, to the meatheads and the plant-based out there. Um, but I think generally speaking, we're seeing people's interest in health intersect with their food beyond just the meal plans and the next fad diet and eating more fruits and vegetables is a big part of what's healthy for our bodies and healthy for our planet. Um, There are a handful of books that I've worked on over the past few years that have really dramatically changed how I cook and eat and then also how I review our projects because I have this responsibility and in many ways agents are gatekeepers just like publishers are in terms of the cultural conversations that we're having and the recipes we're putting out there and the messages and I absolutely want to work with super talented people and I also want those people to be promoting messages that are healthy for this, the longevity of our our lives and um, and the planet, you know, because where we we need to support a healthy planet, and I and I really stand by that. Um, so fruits and vegetables are a big part of that. We haven't really talked about cannabis, but between living in Massachusetts and also um, working with a lot of California publishers and some East Coast publishers, there have been a bunch of cannabis and culinary cannabis cookbooks that have been out over the past few years. Um, but with legalization going through different states, I think we'll see more and unique voices in that space coming out, both from a growing um, processing and cooking standpoint. Um, and, you know, again, All I right. really you heard it on Julia's podcast, the cannabis book uh, trend prediction. Yeah. Oh, it's it's here. <laughs> 
it's happening. Um, I think it's a matter of now sort of teasing out the people who are really skilled and qualified to be to be writing those books and delivering information that is safe for the consumer to experiment with uh, without thinking about, you know, college brownies. We're, we're way beyond that now. Um, and then, you know, I want to also just reiterate a message of hope for the many food writers who I've spoken with and communicated with over the over the past few years that felt frustrated by the the digital um, obsession with recipes and cooking because I'm seeing publishers continually ask for the talented, credited, beautiful writing from very um, seasoned and professional and qualified, talented food writers. And so, you know, to, to, I, I want to read text that makes me cry and laugh out loud and just my mouth starts watering and publishers want to read that too and the consumers want to read that. And again, we, I'm seeing more of a demand and interest from publishers for deep dives into different regional cuisines and different um, cultures and just an interest in exploring the nuances of, of food and ingredients in ways that um, I think are, are coming off the, the digital craze. And it's like if you, if you were able to ride it out and you made it, stick, stick with us because, you know, we have some really exciting books coming. Presumably that means, though, you have to still be writing and it means you have to be writing to have some kind of track record and the forum to do that, especially now that, you know, print and newsprint magazine training of where a lot of these talented writers at least helped had both assignments to hone their craft and guidance to hone their craft. That that's kind of tricky because that means a lot of people getting poorly paid to do that in order to hone their craft to then be attractive to publishers. Or or do you think I'm off base in in pointing that out? I think I think you're right. I mean, having your name out there, whether it's a digital byline or a print byline, which is very rare, um, is important. And you know, continuing to write in the space, whether even if it hasn't been in book form is essential because you're you're staying relevant and you're writing for the various platforms and mediums that people are reading on. Um, and, you know, I am definitely not solution to the fact that really good editing is just not happening anymore. Um, again, I grew up in this industry, so I have this unique perspective in that I remember what people call the quote-unquote good old days, but when I actually joined this industry and then decided to stay and make this my career, I was sort of mentored and raised and exposed to the the digital and online space. And so I I really value the the talented, long established food writer and I want to work with the people who have continued to to transform and transfer into all different types of food writing spaces. And with that comes a lack of really good editing. And yes, that's really frustrating. And frankly, when you read those articles or posts or stories online or in printed form even, um, you, you know, you can tell that editing is just not what it used to be. Well, that gives everyone hope that just a lot of top 10 lists are not going to make a um, food writer who publishers want to publish to get quality prose and well-written things. So there is there is hope for a return to depth. We heard it from Sally, and we'll see if it plays out. And I think certainly what you said about 
healthy bodies and the planet focus and it being a sort of more holistic than diet-based approach does feel like how I said at the beginning of the podcast, like cookbooks represent society. And I do think that's where the conversation is right now with a more holistic view of how do I understand food better and eat better and cook better so that I live a better life and we help the planet, which is certainly something the foundation and Julia were really big in advocating. So that's, that's reassuring to hear. Thanks for that, Sally. Absolutely. All right. After the break, Sally's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the, the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she inspired them in their career. All right, Sally, what's your Julia Moment? Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to share this story because... Oh, I um, I don't know. I'm sharing the story through the lens in which it's been retold to me and also my one of my earliest food memories. So it's the intersection of a taste memory and my Julia moment. Um, so I was about six or seven years old. I think it was around seven. And this is when um, Lisa and Lou, my parents, were still married and we were they were working in the industry and at, for some reason, uh, Julia got wind that we had an industrial walk in our kitchen. And so when she was coming to dinner for some local event or for whatever reason she was coming to the house for dinner, um, my parents put together, they wanted to cook her an epic meal. And, of course, you don't cook French food for Julia. You cook Chinese food because that was something that she expressed a real love for, and she was really fascinated by this, like, super high-heat industrial walk that we have still to this day in, in our kitchen here. Um, and so I think probably they were cooking Susanna Fu's Chinese recipes um, because my mom worked with Susanna way back when on some of her early cookbooks from the PR days. And we they were cooking like a 12-course uh, traditional Chinese menu because you know, you got to kind of roll out all the stops for Julia. Um, and apparently I... I had met her like very briefly um, before that, but she was coming to the house for dinner. I, I, I knew she was coming. I sort of knew ish who she was. 
Um, and my sister and I were supposed to be sort of upstairs with the babysitter after we had the chance to meet her and just sort of like then we were going to be tucked away while the, the adults had dinner. My, my mom and dad invited, um, I don't know, probably like I think there was about 10 people coming to dinner that night, and everyone was really excited to, to sit and share a meal with Julia. I had the chance to meet her, and I, I remember her being like very tall, <laughs> and I was sort of scooted upstairs with the babysitter, and a few moments later, um, for, you know, just being the the person that I am, I guess it was really unacceptable that I was not invited to share the meal. So I came downstairs, I took a chair, and I pulled it right up next to her and sat down at the table and decided, you know, I'm I'm also invited to this dinner party. Um, but the reason I, I, I think of this as also one of my earliest food memories is um, I distinctly remember two tastes that night, and they are logged in my food memory because... Um, it was a some sort of like maybe fermented black bean short rib or some sort of rib and a traditional fried rice dish. And I remember even now the, the taste memory being really like bitter and pungent. And as a seven-year-old eating what my parents were calling Chinese food, it, it just didn't taste very sweet or very good to me. And I, I remember that bitterness and feeling like I was among this table of adults with Julia and, and like I wanted to eat it because I wanted to be at that table with her and and with all of the adults. And thinking back to the taste, I can almost retaste it in a positive way because now I've come to appreciate the funkiness of fermented black beans and the, the skill that went into cooking that meal that night. Um, but it's so interesting thinking about being on the podcast today and remembering Julia and scooting that chair up next to her and this taste memory of, of really mature flavors. I keep thinking of like, I don't even know how to say it right, centrifugal force in that Julia was this magnetic thing and you were drawn to it. And then look what happened as the outcome from just you. It was like a, ma a magnet that was just pulling you towards that table. I love it. Absolutely. I mean, she, she was. Everyone who watched her or knew her or even didn't know her. I mean, she had this way of making you feel like you were friends. And, you know, thinking back to what seven-year-old me must have been like, who's going to pass up an opportunity to sit next to Julia? You were, yes, yes, a smart seven-year-old. Well, that's great. Thanks for joining us today, Sally, and sharing that Julia moment. That's, that's a really unique one. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been so much fun to talk with you and, and share share some chat about the industry. Wonderful. Thanks everyone else for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you learned a lot about how to write a cookbook and what the good ones to look for are. Let us know what you think about today's show or what your favorite cookbook of this year has been so far or the one you're looking forward to buying. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo at Julia, at, sorry, at contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You can like us on Facebook, search at Julia Child, or follow the foundation on Twitter. The handle is at JuliaChildJCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. We're on Instagram, search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. If you want to dive into Sally's world, you can follow her on social media. She's very switched on. Her handle on Twitter and Instagram is at Sally Eckes, and she's Sally.Eckes on Facebook. And she spells Sally with a Y, and it's 
ECUS is E-K-U-S. And if you want to learn more about the agency that Sally works with and for the Lisa ECUS group, go to lisaecus.com. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review to help new listeners find us. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m., 1 p.m. Pacific. And with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So we look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.